0: Who among us has not had moments of anxiety when thinking about the challenges of our time? Every day, we receive a new list of challenges that concern our city, the state, and the nation, not to mention our own personal list that involves our families and friends ill health, broken relationships, tensions, and failures, but between them, moments of good news. It is easy to interpret our lives in light of personal experiences and perspectives, such that it is easy to slip into despair because nothing seems to be going well or not going well enough. Likewise, it is also easy to see everything from the point of view of a society or nation and construct a doomsday view, even if one's life is lived within a frame of normality. There are two time periods represented in our epistle and gospel readings, and to these we turn to get a sense of context and how we balance the paradox of living individual lives that are so influenced by external events, but all these within living in the kingdom of God. The letter to the Romans was written in a period of relative peace, but Paul seems to address the search for a common understanding of what Christian life should comprise when Christians and all the other religious people there saw their identities in conflicting terms. Jewish Christians who followed Jewish rules and had Hebrew names and Hebrew traditions. There were Hellenized Jews who had Greek names and Greek practices and customs. And then there were the entire variety of Gentile Christians. All of these groups seem to be in need of instruction on a variety of topics, such as compliance with Jewish law, who is an ally and who is an enemy. Should you obey political authorities or resist them when you have questions about their ethics and motivations? Should you eat meat? or just vegetables, and we can update these questions to fit our own time and circumstances. But there is only one answer to all of these questions as Paul reminds the Romans in this letter, which is one of the earliest of our our New Testament scriptures. Whether a Jew practicing the law as inherited or the newest Gentile Christian transformed by the gospel, all are inheritors of the grace of God brought about by the Messiah. And so he instructs them, do not take on yourself the obligation of judging others. Passing judgment only exposes our own weaknesses and underscores similarities to those to whom we think we are superior, whether in intellect or other measures. And for us, we live in the world thrust into the demands and pressures of daily life, yet we are members of the living body of Christ who transcends history to fail to recognize this dual aspect of our existence is to be irrevocably tethered to a drudgery of existence in which joy is hard to find and we busy ourselves trying to lift ourselves out through pursuits that cannot really bring fulfillment. And so for the Romans, the questions around purity of doctrine and practice and discriminating against other early Christians on this basis meant they were missing the central point, the point about God's love. It is the unfolding of grace that shines light on what we do, and reveals our preoccupations to be petty and therefore never fully satisfying. Paul insists that we experience peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access to grace. And living in the state of grace, this gift allows Paul to write, We can therefore boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So here is the plan. Anticipate suffering as part of our daily existence but recognize that it does eventually lead to the experience of God's love through the Holy Spirit. Our Gospel lesson comes from a much later and terrifying time for all the different groups of people struggling to understand the relationship between Jesus as Messiah and the Jewish tradition. All of a sudden, there was catastrophe. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the devastation of all the communities there. And this led to the extinction of temple worship as it had existed. It is hard to imagine what this felt like, the end of religion as it once existed, the destruction of the temple and the commercial complex that that existed around it, and the subsequent emergence of a new type of Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism, as the dominant group. And so during this time period, there were a variety of leaders, There were the Pharisees, there were Jewish apocalyptics, there were Jewish Christians, there were Hellenistic wonder workers who performed healing and miracles. And so the Pharisees strove to consolidate Judaism under a collection of oral laws and by defining religious practices that should be uniformly followed. And the new Christianity that we see here in its early evolution as presented by Matthew does not dwell on this destruction. It is the post-destruction period of a different generation. They had not directly experienced loss in this way. Matthew slashes the story down to its essentials through the call of the apostles and the work they are commissioned to do. Their focus, according to Matthew's presentation, is the remnant of Israel, not other communities, and the job appears to be quite straightforward. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message The kingdom of heaven has come near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. These appear to be quite straightforward and simple and easy to understand until we try to take on this task ourselves, raise the dead. Heal the sick when we don't even know if we are sick or not. Cleanse the people who have leprosy. And what about demons? The journalist, Dan Harris, describes demons where he struggled with his own demons of drug addiction but then says that in his recovery, the demons had left the building, but they were out in the parking lot doing (laughs) push-ups. And the great scholar of religion, Houston Smith, in describing sickness says that during the decade when he studied Buddhism in Japan, making 10 extended visits there, His most intensive experience came while training at a monastery under a famous abbot. And during this period of time, he got intensely frustrated. The rules of the monastery meant that he was not allowed even to write letters. And he posed the question to The monks there, he said, well, what if my mother were seriously ill and I had to write to her? And they said, well, you would have to do it in the toilet. And so, in course of time, Houston Smith grew angry. He grew angry about the unheated buildings, the fact that he was getting sick, the food wasn't good enough, And so, during the weekly meeting that he had with the abbot, when he would go in to talk about his understanding and his progress, he decided that he was going to let him have it. And so, he worked himself up into a rage, and he strode in to meet with the abbot, and he said to him, he snarled to the Zen master, and said, I am becoming sick because of you. And the teacher responded very matter-of-factly and said, what is sickness and what is health? Both are distractions. Put both aside and move forward. And Houston Smith says, The heart of the experience cannot be fully conveyed in words because those two sentences diffused his anger completely. And he says, I can still remember my immediate response was, Well, by God, he's right. And this was a solving of the problem, not in a rational way, but with a different kind of healing, the long view of healing, a much larger view, and the kind of view that fits in our understanding of being in the kingdom of God. And this rational mode that we use in our everyday business of living brings me to Father's Day. To see fathers at work is to be awed, whether it is the boardroom, the court, surgery, a tech center, whatever the place may be, we see men of action, decisive, holding people to account, executing strategic planning flawlessly. But then, father comes home to teenagers. And teenagers do not stand in awe of their fathers. They don't have respect for the professional lives that their dads live in outside the home. And so fathers are caught up in this temporal world unable to articulate and mediate the great love of God being unable to express matters of the heart very well. Michael Thompson, the great psychologist and author of the book Raising Cain, once said that in his long practice, every client he ever had, when asked to describe the relationship with his father, would inevitably have tears because that is so difficult a relationship. Fathers are powerful, rational, strong, and decisive, but not intuitive. Thank God for the gift of mothers, sisters, and grandmothers who fill this gap. But there are amazing fathers who have amazing success with their children, But most of us do not fall in this category. Most of us are human beings unaware of what to do, what the right answer may be, what the right decision is, but we have to act as if we do. And so it is vital to remember that the only way to get through this is to live in God's grace. It is God's grace that sustains and keeps and protects and informs all that we do. And we need to live with the awareness that the institutions that we hold dear may eventually disappear. However, living in the paradox of individual lives framed by contacts that we cannot possibly influence A realization that we are temporal beings, sustained by grace, is what we need to remember all the time, and far from being weakness, it puts us in the position of being ready to receive the infinite love of God expressed in unfathomable grace. May God give us the discernment to receive these riches and live in joy. Amen.